Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Beautiful Feet. All right. Once again, the title of the message is Beautiful Feet. Now, what I was thinking of this past week is that I, I don't know about you, but I don't really think about my feet very often, but our feet play a vital role in our lives. I remember a girl many, many years ago when I was actually in a youth group, I remember this girl that I dated a couple times, she hated her feet and she didn't like anybody's feet. Her attitude was, all feet are just ugly. And I remember one of the adult workers in our youth group uh, telling her, he said, you know what, You you ought to be grateful for your feet. Because think about it, if you didn't have your feet, every morning when the alarm went off and you swung your legs over the bedside to get up, you'd fall flat on your face. And I still remember that decades later, I remember that guy telling her that and thinking, man, yeah, feet, they're pretty important. And so think about the role of our feet all through our lives. Our feet are so important when we're little babies, they allow us to do this. They actually give us something to suck on in our spare time. Isn't that awesome, right? Try to do that now. I can't even barely tie my shoes some days because my back hurts. But anyway, feet are important. When you grow up, as you continue to grow, what what do feet do? They they help you to stand up. A little wobbly at first, but they help you to stand up, and then they help you to get your balance. Aren't you glad God created your feet so you can have balance? And then later on, next thing you know, you're walking. Next thing you know, you're running. Next thing you know, you're jumping up and down, all because of your feet. Now you're kicking a ball. If someone ever attacks you, God forbid that ever happens, but if someone attacks you, you can use your feet as a tool of self-defense. And so our feet can be used in so many ways, but primarily our feet are used to keep us in motion. Our feet help us to move from point A to point B. Our feet help us to move forward. So everybody's got different feet. Right? Some people have these really big feet. Some people have these really small feet. I couldn't believe that Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, wears a size 23. That's his foot. The guy is a living giant. And so some people have these really big feet. Other people have small feet. Some people have hairy feet. So there's little Frodo there. (laughs) That is so ugly, isn't it? Some people have hairy feet. Some people, well, they have silky smooth feet. Some people have these perfectly painted toenails. What an incredible pedicure, right? Some people haven't cut their toenails in years. Isn't that disgusting? We're going to hand the bucket around so everybody can throw up a little bit bit later. Man, that is so gross. Some people like to actually get these tattoos, and some people even go so far to tattoo their feet. That's a lot of money and a lot of time to spend on a part of your body that not a lot of people are going to see. But anyway, some people are into that type of thing. So the question in the passage today, Romans chapter 10, that everybody has to answer is, if you're taking notes, it's your first point, do you have beautiful feet. Now, as I'm asking that question, I don't want you to look down on your feet 
Please, nobody take off your shoes. You know, we don't offend your neighbor, okay? So Paul's not talking about attractiveness when he talks about beautiful feet. What he's talking about is motion. Look at uh, verse 15 of Romans chapter 10. Paul quoting the prophet Isaiah. He said, how beautiful are the what? The feet, okay? How beautiful are the feet? I'm in Romans chapter 10. Um, the second half of verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. And check out the motion here. Who bring glad tidings of good things. And so some people have beautiful feet because when it comes to the gospel, their feet are in motion. Some people have beautiful feet because when it comes to the gospel, they're carrying glad tidings to other people. So we're going to talk a little bit more about verse 15 later in the message, but what I want to do uh, before we jump into our first verse today in verse 14 is I want to recap last week briefly, okay? And so if you remember last week in verses uh, 6 through 13, we learned that our salvation is not hard to attain. Some people think, man, you just got to uh, uh, live this really hard, difficult, godly, holy life, and then maybe if you've been holy enough, at the end, if you jumped it through enough hoops, right? If you made these religious pilgrimages, every religion's got a different way to heaven. You know, maybe then you can achieve heaven. That's straight from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke. Our salvation is not hard to attain. Our salvation is not inaccessible. Our salvation is not far away. Paul said last week that, you know, we don't have to ascend up into heaven to bring Christ down. We don't have to descend into the abyss to bring Christ up. No, Christ has already done everything needed for us to be saved. He came down from heaven. We don't have to go up there and bring him down. No, God became a man. It's called the incarnation. It's the miracle of the incarnation. God took on human flesh, the eternal God, the one and only God, became a man, went to a cross, paid for our sins, died. Three days later, here's the second resurrection, not just the incarnation, but the resurrection. We don't have to go down into abyss to bring Christ out. No, Christ already rose from the dead. So Paul's point is that through these two amazing miracles, the miracle of the incarnation and the miracle of the resurrection, our salvation because of Christ, it's not difficult to attain. It's not far away. It's so close. You say, how close is it? Well, by way of review, look at Romans 10 verse 9. That if you confess with your, what's the word? Mouth. So glad many of you right now are looking at the Bible and going through the scriptures as we teach it verse by verse. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your, what's the word? Heart. You see how close it is? Our salvation is as close as our mouth and our heart. If you believe in your heart that God has raised Christ from the dead, you will be saved. Jump down to verse 13. 
For whoever calls, that's Jews or Gentiles, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so last week, the big question was, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and your God? And have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If you've done that sincerely, authentically, genuinely, then you're saved. Saved from what? When I was a kid growing up, people would, would ask me, are you saved? And I would look at them like they have two heads. I just didn't know what they're talking about. But Paul says the word saved over and over and over again in his letter to the Romans. And so if you and I, if we have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is my Lord and my God and believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of our sin. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. I say it every week because we have visitors every week who think they're going to heaven because they're good people. No, you're sinners, and the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death. No, you're not just a physical body. You're also a spiritual body. And your soul is immortal. And your soul will live in one of two places forever, heaven or hell. But if you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and your God, and you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from hell. The problem is not everybody is saved. Have you guys noticed that lately? The nation of Israel, by the way, only people group in the history of the world who were dispersed outside of their land for some 1,800 plus years. And in 1948, May 1948, the Jews regathered to the promised land that God had given them back in the Old Testament. Never happened before, never will happen again. But Israel as a nation, not individual Jews, okay? Please hear me. Indivi thousands and thousands of individual Jews have received Yeshua as their Messiah, and they're completed. I'm not talking about individual Jews. I'm talking about the nation of Israel. Right now, they're still not saved. They do not recognize Jesus as their Messiah. There's a problem, not just the nation of Israel, but millions and millions of Gentiles are still not saved. Why? Well, for many of them, it's because they haven't heard and because they haven't heard, they haven't believed. So if they haven't heard, and they haven't believed because they haven't heard, what do they need? Well, they need a preacher, right? Isn't that what Paul says now in verse 14? Here's our first verse today. How then shall they call on him, that's Jesus, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a what? A preacher. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and now Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now, you need to know that Paul, right there in verse 15, is quoting from Isaiah 52, 7. 
okay? Isaiah was a prophet back in your Old Testaments. He wrote, lived right around 700 B.C. So Paul goes back and he quotes Isaiah 52, 7. I'll quote it to you. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so in the original context of Isaiah 52, 7, Isaiah wrote about the beautiful feet of those messengers, those prophets, those preachers who were used by God to proclaim good news to the Jews, listen to this, who were in captivity up in Babylon. If you don't know your Bible history, what you need to know is that Judah, the Jews, they were worshiping idols for decades. God warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them. I'm your God. Stop bowing down to these little trinket gods. And yet they persisted in their idolatry. So what did God do? He used his servant, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And Babylon came down, and they defeated the Jews. And they began in 607 B.C. to take the Jews captive. And so God's people were now captives, exiled in a foreign land. But here's the good news. God says to his people, the Jews, I still love you. Even though you've worshipped false gods, I still love you. I can't get over my love for you. And so what did he do? God sent these preachers up on the mountains, going up to Babylon, present-day Iraq. And these preachers said to the Jews who were exiled in a foreign land, hey, God still loves you, and he wants me to give you this, these glad tidings that even though you're exiles in a foreign land, he's going to bring you back from your captivity. He's going to bring you back to the promised land. And God did exactly that. And so Paul takes that passage in Isaiah 52.7, and he applies it to the preachers of good news today in our own day. And so just like in the Old Testament times, you had these preachers with a message of salvation to the Jews. So now in our time, New Testament time, you have these preachers who are messengers of the good news of salvation to the world. And just like in the Old Testament times, um, these, these preachers in the Old Testament, the prophets, the messengers, they had beautiful feet because they shared good news. So in our time, in New Testament times, Anybody and everybody who shares the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God says, you have beautiful feet too. Why? They're in motion. It leads you to your next point. Those who move the gospel forward have beautiful feet. Do you have beautiful feet? When I think of preacher. Okay, I looked the word up. It only means to herald the good news. When I was writing this message thinking about what is a preacher, I thought about a kid back in the old days selling newspapers on the city street corner. If you're 20 years old or younger, there used to be these things called newspapers, and everybody would open them up, big pieces of paper with black print, and they would read all about the news. I know today, you know, you, you, all you do is this, but anyway, and so think about a kid on a busy street corner 
right? And he's there, he's selling newspapers, he's heralding the headlines, whatever they were for that day. You know, maybe it was extra, extra, read all about it. You know, the war's over, peace has come. Well, that kid was a preacher. Why? He's heralding the good news. And so how many of you guys believe that Christianity is like the best news going? Do you, if you believe that, put your hands together, right? If you believe Jesus Christ is the only answer and the best news going, man, it's true. We have this amazing message. Some of you guys watched the Republican National Convention last week. You're going to watch the Democratic National Convention this week. And you get all excited about these politicians. And you think, man, woo, good news. Guess what? All those politicians are going to be forgotten. And we're still forever and ever going to be worshiping Jesus Christ, who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Right? Their good news... Their good news is just temporary solutions. Christ's good news is forever and ever and ever. And the reason I say this is because some of you guys get so excited about politics that now all of a sudden you're more excited about some guy or some lady who's running for political office than you are about Jesus Christ. Watch your heart. It should be like this. There's nothing wrong with being political, right? But make sure that Christ is the center. Christ is your foundation. And you recognize Christ as your Lord and as your God. He's the answer. Nobody else, no politician is the answer. And so, man, we have some really good news to share. The good news, God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. That whoever, Jew or Gentile, believes in him will not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Best news going. And so when we say, yes, Lord, I'll be a preacher, the problem is for decades in the church, we have got this all wrong. We think, okay, we're going to pay our tithes and offerings to pay the professional paid guy to be our preacher, and we're going to sit in the pew and watch him preach. Okay, there's nothing wrong. God does call pastors into full-time ministry to feed the flock of God the word of God. But guess what? There's not just one preacher in this church. We have four other pastors. There's not just five preachers in this church. Pardon the bad English, but all y'all are preachers. Every single one of you. We all have this good news of Jesus Christ and how he can change lives. And so when we finally say yes to God's call to be the preacher that he wants us to be, here's what he does. He sends some of us to other countries, but he sends most of us to our own country. How many of you guys know America desperately needs the gospel? Right? He sends some of us across the seas, but he sends most of us across the street. Right? And so when you think about this, and I remember, you know, for years, inviting, 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 being a witness to, to neighbors on our street, and finally, literally, after 10, 11 years, they came through those back doors. Okay? God may not call you overseas, but he may call you to just walk across the street and develop a relationship with your neighbor. And so 
Yes, God will call some to be pastors and missionaries and evangelists and church planners, but he's going to call most to become police officers and firefighters and attorneys and physicians and nurse practitioners and software developers and a hundred other professions so that we all can be salt and light in our community. Your job as a preacher in your job is just as important as my preacher, uh, my job as a preacher here in this church. See, the New Testament says guys like me, pastors, are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Did you guys just hear a thump? That was the ball, it just landed in your court. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would awaken in your heart your responsibility to be a preacher of this good news as God opens doors. When my wife and I were called here to Port St. Lucie, I was on staff, most of you know, at a Calvary Chapel in Jupiter, and the Lord called us to go to Port St. Lucie. And man, in those days, the, the Great Commission was burning in my heart. When I was ordained to be a pastor, by the way, way back in 1993, uh, the, the pastor used Matthew 28, 18 through 20 as the text for that ordination service. It was the Great Commission. Let me quote it for some of you who are not familiar with it. The risen Christ said this to his disciples. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go. Please, everybody say go. go. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everybody say baptize. Then he said, teaching them all, check it out, teaching them all things, whatever I've commanded you. Everybody say teach. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the Lord called us to come to Port St. Lucie. He said, go. So what did we do? We loaded up the truck and we moved to Port St. Lucie. He said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for 12 years and two months, what have we been doing? Me and the leadership, the pastors and the elders of this church, we have had the honor and the privilege of baptizing hundreds and hundreds of people in the last 12 years and two months. He said, go. He said, baptize. He said, teach them all things. For, for 12 years and two months, I've been going through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, teaching you guys all things. What's been the result? We've been making disciples, not just converts. We've been helping people become lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. And so that's what this church is all about. Our mission is to obey the Great Commission. Jesus said, go. My desire is that now, 12 years later, the, the Great Commission would be burning in our heart more than it's ever burned in our hearts. Jesus said, go. And so my prayer is that God would help us, enable us. He would raise up leaders within our body so that we can send them out to be church planters and missionaries. We sent Pastor Chuck Back in the day to Stewart, we sent Pastor Teddy back in the day up to Fort Pierce. We sent Pastor Dave out to Billings, Montana. That's just three. Man, I would love to be able to send out 30 church planners in the next 12, 15 years. Why? Because Jesus said, go. Ladies and gentlemen, church is not about just coming and sitting in a row twice a month and hearing how you can be a success in your life. That's not church at all. We have the best 
news in the world. And there's a lost and dying world that desperately need to hear that news. And he said, go. And we would not just go and sit by sending out church planters and missionaries, but also we would continue to go right here on the Treasure Coast, that there wouldn't be one, two, three, four, or five preachers in this church, but we would have 1,500 preachers in this church who are sharing the good news of the gospel. Here's some opportunities, just a few. You say, how can I be a preacher? Well, maybe the Lord's calling you to join the witnessing team or at least go out one Thursday with them. You see, every second and fourth Thursday evening at seven o'clock, Jack Worrell, who's been with us since day one, who's on the board of directors, leads a witnessing team out into the community to share the love of Christ. And so they get together, seven o'clock, second and fourth Thursday nights of every month in the back end of the Staples parking lot, and they get together, and you might think, well, I don't have any experience sharing my faith. That's okay. Jack will put you with somebody who does. You just have to follow them around and pray. Watch how they do it. And so, man, they've seen hundreds and hundreds of people pray to receive Christ, and over the years, many of them have come on Sunday morning. What a great opportunity to join the witnessing team. It's always in the program um, the Sunday before they go out on the Thursday. And then another thing, our life groups. We don't want, as we continue to grow in life groups, did you hear our goal earlier? We, our God goal, this is something God-led, our God goal is to have over 100 healthy groups that are not just inward-focused, but are outward-focused. What does that mean? That means that you may invite some people to church on Sunday, and they may not come on Sunday, but they may join you in your life group. What a great opportunity for them to see eight to 12 people who love one another, care for each other, pray for each other. Maybe they'll come to a block barbecue party that you have with your life group this fall. But keep your neighbors, keep your friends, keep your coworkers on your radar when it comes not just to church, but when it comes to your life group. And not just that, but lifestyle evangelism. Every day we should be wide open to the divine appointments that God may give us on that particular day. And so, man, we have to be ready, right, always to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, whether that's across the backyard fence or whether that's in the break room at work or whether that's in a classroom at the school, wherever it might be, you'll know God will open the door. You're in the middle of a conversation. The person has a need. You say, can I pray for you? And you share the love of Christ with that person. These are just some of the opportunities. Now, let me give you some tips. God may call you to share your faith with a total stranger, and that's great. If he does, we gotta obey. But here's a good general principle, okay? And that is develop a relationship with the person first. Some people call this friendship evangelism. Develop a relationship with a person who doesn't go to church, who doesn't know Jesus. Get involved somehow in their life and then walk the walk before you talk the talk. Let them see your life before you share Jesus with them. Why? Here's why. Because words that come from a faithful life have so much weight and credibility. And so let them see your walk and then share your testimony. I believe the most powerful tool that we have in evangelism is bar none. It's God's word. This book is alive. 
And when you share it in the power of the Holy Spirit, he breaks up hearts. He breaks up the fallow ground. He causes people to be regenerated and sanctified, right? And so this is the most powerful tool, sharing the word of God. But the second most powerful tool is your personal testimony. It's your story. You see, everybody who knows Jesus as their Savior and Lord, you have a story of who you were before Christ, how you met Christ, and now what he's done in your life since then. Everybody has that story. And so it's hard to argue over a changed life. People may argue with you about, you know, all these different kind of tenets and principles, but when they see your life and they hear your story of how Christ changed you, it's hard to argue with that. And then final tip is our three eyes. We talk about this every year for many years, and that is intercede, invest, and invite. We're talking about how to have beautiful feet. We're talking about how can we be preachers. Well, it all starts with prayer, intercession. And three weeks ago, I had you go home, think about people you know who don't know the Lord, write down their names. I hope you did that. And I hope you've been praying for those people by name at least once a week. And here's what's happening. The Holy Spirit now is drawing them into a relationship with Christ. You're interceding, and now you're investing. You're investing in that relationship. And then, finally, you invite them to the church. Everybody, grab your invite card that's on your seat in front of you. Just grab it and hold it up so I see that everybody has one, please. Grab the invite card and hold it up. This is an amazing tool. Here's why. Because when you find yourself in that conversation with somebody this week, you can say, hey, we would love to have you join us at one of our three services at Calvary. I can meet you in the foyer, or if you can come with whatever service you want, we would love to have you. Here's what happens so often. The person says, thank you, you know, and then they put that in a drawer somewhere at home, and they don't come Sunday. In fact, a lot of times, they don't come for months until there's a problem, a tension, trouble, a trial in their life. And then all of a sudden, when people are going through, when people are having a a good time, when people, when everything is good, people tend to forget God. But when things get bad, they remember God. And oh yeah, I remember that invite little ticket thing that they gave me. And we've seen it over and over. People come months after they've been invited. They show up because they're in need for peace and hope. And this is when they come to church. And so intercede, invest, and invite. Now, here's the cool thing, is that when they come into this kind of environment on a Sunday morning, they walk in and they're surrounded by friendly people. And can I just thank you, by the way, if you're in our core group, if you're part of the group of people at Calvary who don't just come in and sit in a pew twice a month and then leave, but you're, this is your home church, and you're connecting, serving, growing, and giving. So you're serving in the parking lot, or as a greeter, or as an usher, or hospitality, or the children's ministry, or security team, or safety team, or the worship team, or the tech team, or the prayer team, and I go on and on and on. If that's you, what you need to know is that we have people fill out these surveys when they visit. And you know what one of the most consistent observations that visitors have? 
Wow, what a friendly church. Can I say thank you? Because my wife and I, yeah, we ought to thank all the people in our core group right now for, for making that environment. Man, my wife and I have visited so many churches over the years. And you know what? Most of the time, we barely get a smile from people. A lot of times, they give us a program as we're walking in. They don't even look to keep the conversation going on with the person next to them. And they don't even talk to us before, during, or after the service. And it's awkward. And so I want to say thank you to those of you who are going above and beyond, who realize that church is not something that you come to get your needs filled, but it's a place to go so you can serve others. If that's you and you're contributing to this friendly, vibrant, awesome environment, from as your pastor, thank you so much. God is using you in a big way. And they come in, they're, they're surrounded by friendly people, and then all of a sudden they're impacted with spirit-filled worship. And it's kind of like, whoa, why is the hair standing up on my arms? I don't understand what's going on right now. And then they hear a, a message straight from the word of God. And the best part of all is they have an opportunity to receive Jesus at the end of the service. And so listen, when you take one of these and you've invited somebody, that absolutely is part of an evangelistic effort to have beautiful feet and to be a preacher. We gotta move on, look at verse 16. And so how beautiful are the feet in verse 15 of those who share the gospel. But now in verse 16, it says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Right, speaking about Israel again, the nation of Israel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And by the way, that's Isaiah 53, one. I wanna encourage you this week to go back to Isaiah 53, read the last few verses in chapter 52, read the entire chapter 53, and then ask yourself, who is this talking about? I'll give you a hint, his name is Jesus. And I'm just gonna see if you guys have been listening. How many years before Christ did Isaiah write? Help me out. 700 years before Christ. And Isaiah 53 is all about the passion, the suffering, and the death of Jesus. Right there in the Jewish Bible, it's been there since 700 BC, and yet the nation rejected their Messiah. And so verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so here's your next point if you're taking notes. The Spirit uses the proclamation of the word in order to produce faith in people's hearts. Okay, stay with me all the way to the end here. Look at, listen to verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that the Holy Spirit uses the proclamation of the word in order to produce faith in people's hearts. What is that called? That's called the new birth. It's called being born again. How does it happen? Look at 1 Peter 1, 23 up on the screen. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring, what's the last three words? Word of God. The, the, the word of God is so powerful, it can cause there to be regeneration. It's called the new birth. 
And the word of God is so powerful, it can cause sanctification. It's called spiritual growth. And so in Acts 10, Peter's proclaiming the word of God, salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to Cornelius and his friends and his family. And as Peter is proclaiming the word of God, you guys remember this story? He didn't have time to give an invitation. Peter didn't have time to sing two or three stanzas of Just As I Am. Right in the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit fell and regenerated the hearts of Gentiles, and they were gloriously, wow, that's hard to say, saved right there in their living room in Cornelius' house. Why? Because the word of God is so powerful, it can cause regeneration, and the word of God is so powerful, it can cause sanctification. That word sanctification means to be set apart, it means to grow spiritually. Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And so how are you gonna grow grow spiritually? Through the word of God. And that, by the way, is why we teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Look at verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Paul now quotes from Psalm 19. Their sound, speaking about creation, has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? Well, Moses says, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 21. I will provoke you, Israel, to jealousy by those who are not a nation. That's Gentiles. And I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Verse 20. But Isaiah is very bold, and he says, and Paul now quotes from Isaiah 65. By the way, do you notice Paul quotes the Bible a lot? You know why he quotes the Bible a lot? (laughs) He's a Bible teacher. In Isaiah, he says, I... I was found by those who did not seek me, that's the Gentiles. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me, but to Israel, he says. He quotes finally from Isaiah 65 too. All day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see, God, more than any other nation or people group, God gave Israel so many chances to repent. And Israel as a nation kept hardening their heart, hardening their heart, hardening their heart. God says, man, all day, I love you guys. All day long, I'm I'm reaching out to you, but you keep saying no. And when I even sent my son, you said no to my sons, to my son. And so the question we have is, what is your response to God and his son going to be. I wanna close the sermon with this illustration. You don't have to turn there, but it's found in Luke chapter 16. Jesus told a true story about two men. By the way, it was not a parable because in all of Jesus' parables, he would never name proper names. But in this story, one of the two men 
had a name and Jesus told us his name. He was a poor man and his name was Lazarus. And so Jesus said, there's two men. There was a rich man. And this rich man, man, he lived the luxurious life. He had everything he could ever want. And so, you know, he had all these, this incredible material wealth, this big estate, he had this, this gate. And at the gate, here's the second man, there was this poor guy named Lazarus. You guys remember the story? And there's Lazarus, and he's so poor, he's starving to death. He's got all these sores all over his body, Jesus said. The dogs would come and lick his sores. And so this rich man was all about me, myself, and I. This rich man was godless. He had no faith in God. This rich man totally ignored the poor man because the poor guy just wanted some crumbs off the table of the rich man. And God said that the poor man died. And the angels came and escorted him to Abraham's bosom, otherwise known as paradise. By the way, for those of you who know Jesus, when you take your last breath, get ready for an angel encounter, because they're going to come get you. The angels carried away Lazarus, the poor man, to paradise. And then Jesus said the rich man died. The rich man died, and this is Jesus Christ talking here. He said, quote, in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. And he looked across a great gulf fixed, and he saw Abraham, and he saw Lazarus, the beggar that used to lay at his gate. And the rich man cried out, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here with some water to cool my tongue. I am tormented in this flame. Jesus told this true story. And Abraham said, no, there's a great gulf fixed. Nobody over here can go over there. Nobody over there can come over here. And the rich man said, well, then send Lazarus back from the grave to my five brothers so that they don't come here. Make sure Lazarus warns my five brothers. And Abraham said, no, your five brothers, listen, have Moses and the prophets. Your five brothers have the scriptures. Your five brothers have the word of God. The rich man's like, no, but if somebody rises from the dead, then they'll believe. And Abraham said, no, if they won't believe God's word, the scriptures, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The Jews, the nation of Israel, rejected him. Even though the miracle of the resurrection occurred and they couldn't find a body, they still rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Even though they had the evidence of a miracle, they still rejected. Why? Because they didn't believe their own scriptures. 700 BC, Isaiah 53, is all about Jesus. You see, ladies and gentlemen, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is a place called heaven, and there is a place called hell. 
By the way, the rich man did not cry out, oh, Father Abraham, please have lots of people pray for me because I'm in purgatory, and maybe if they pray hard enough, I'll be released from purgatory. There's no place in the Bible called purgatory. There is a heaven and there is a hell. You have a soul. And when your body dies, your soul will either go to heaven, where you'll, you'll be with Lazarus and Abraham and all the saints and all the believers for thousands of years, or you're, you'll end up in hell. And what's scary is that some of you right now are listening to this, watching online, listening on the podcast, and you're still gonna die, and you're still gonna wake up in hell. Because right now, your attitude is, nope, no preacher's gonna tell me how to live my life. Would you drop the defensives, the defensive wall, and would you go to Jesus, who's the only one who can save you? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.